This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Tough new measures were announced yesterday to counter coronavirus, pleasing some of the pundits who'd pleaded for action in recent days. But these changes could also change the game for our media in the longer run. And as the effects of COVID-19 spread here and now, sound coverage in our media gets ever more important as opposed to off-the-cuff opinions. We appear to be watching economies like ours being chucked on the international bonfire. Uh, this won't be pretty. A potential collapse of this international world order is at stake. What are we all afraid of? That one person in a crowd has it and therefore they may infect somebody else. That's later on in the programme today. But first, the focus is on the anniversary of that atrocity in Christchurch a year ago. The media rolled out lots of coverage to commemorate it this past week, honouring those who died and those who survived but have also suffered since. But some of them made it clear they didn't actually welcome it. Because the commemoration anniversary is remembering what has happened, right? But we remember every day what has happened and we pray for those who have lost their lives every day. We do not need a fixed day to actually remember them, like a commemoration anniversary day. So that is something that, no, we, as Otago Muslim Association, are not doing it. That was Mohammed Rizwan, president of the Otago Muslim Association, speaking to the Otago Daily Times in a video interview for its website, and there he was explaining why the group wouldn't be taking part in the planned memorial service in Christchurch this weekend, which was eventually, of course, cancelled less than 24 hours before it was due to begin as a precaution against the spread of coronavirus. Now, that would likely have cast a shadow over the event in any case, but long before that became an issue, Mr Rizwan said that some Kiwi Muslims were unhappy about the event going ahead in the first place. But if you talk to the victims and the families of the victims, most of them, they will tell you they don't want it. Mm-hmm. They just want to move on. They, they don't want to remember it again, you know. Mohammed Rizwan went on to say that one reason for that was that marking anniversaries wasn't actually typical in Islamic culture. And that was also a point made by Dr. Maysoon Salama, a woman whose husband was badly injured and her son Atta Alian killed in the attack a year ago. And she said this to Kim Hill on Saturday morning on RNZ National. We don't have an annual, you know, Remembrance Day uh, for us, you know, once the janazah is done, uh, three days. We close the chapter, but we still live the legacy of our loved ones. and We move on with our lives. So you want to remember your loved ones, but not necessarily to remember that day. That, exactly, yes. The Otago Daily Times also reported recently that other Muslim associations had also distanced themselves from commemorations. But the Muslim Association of Canterbury took the matter into their own hands, with a website of its own, One Year On, which says this. It has been created to make it easier for our small community to respond to the many requests we get from New Zealand and overseas media. We hope you find it useful. We trust that media will respect our community's privacy and well-being at this sensitive time. Among six Message from the Mosque videos on the One Year On site, which people are invited to watch and share, is one by a young woman named Mulki, one of the survivors of the attacks a year ago, and she made it clear in her video she didn't relish the anniversary either. The main theme in the next couple of weeks is going to be like, you know, a year on, a year from now. But for me, it's just kind of been like every day since March 15th, going through the same thing. Like for me, a year on, two years on, three years on, it's not going to really be any different. It's literally every day since and how I am right now. So, um, and I guess it's similar for a lot of people that are going through the same thing, is that it's been every single day.
and she's not the only one in the one-year-on video series who feels that way. But Al Noor Mosque spokesperson Tony Green says on the site the community wants its own videos shared far and wide, and some have been. Christchurch Press reporter Charlie Gates, for example, turned Mulkey's message into a story for stuff.co.nz, the most read news website in this country. And the one-year-on site itself hosts other media reporting, for instance, a series of digital stories by and about the lives of Kiwi Muslims, This Is Us, hosted by RNZ. I love hearing stories about my family. They are early stories of resilience, racism and building a community. My nana always recounts stories of his grandfather's arrival. More stories in that series were released each day this past week in the run-up to this weekend's anniversary. And there were many more personal tales in the media too. TVNZ One on Tuesday, for instance, aired We Are One, a documentary following six of the families through their first year after the attacks. The atrocity a year ago has also had an effect on some of the journalists who were suddenly confronted with it that day and their news organisations. And also among the anniversary-related content rolled out in the media this past week was a sequence of long interviews with Christchurch journalists who found themselves on the scene that day. He hasn't wanted to talk publicly again uh, with the anniversary approaching, which I absolutely respect. But obviously, you know, people deal with... uh, anniversaries of tragedies in such a different way. Yeah, it's true. It's true. TVNZ's Lisa Davies there talking to Reverend Frank Ritchie, who styles himself as the media chaplain, and that was from his series of interviews called Friday Prayers. Another in that series was Thomas Mead, then a young reporter with News Hub. He was one of the first on the scene at the El Noor Mosque, along with camera operator Mike Johnson. And his interview at the scene with wheelchair-bound Farid Ahmed at the police cordon was then seen all over the world. So were you inside the mosque at the time of the shooting? Where were you this afternoon? I was inside the mosque. Uh, um, I was in the side room. Uh, and uh, the imam had started the sermon uh, as uh, usually it is. Last May, Thomas Mead said he'd been struggling with guilt ever since the attack as his life had returned to normal. And in that Friday prayer series, he told the host Frank Ritchie this. Because at the end of the day, nothing that I've experienced or any of us have experienced will ever compare to the kind of trauma that they've gone through and then the kind of grace um, and you know, love that they displayed in response to that. It's, it's then we should really think. Well, this week I asked Thomas Mead if he understood the reservations of those who didn't really relish this weekend's commemorations. There are a mix of opinions amongst the people that I've spoken to personally and I also think amongst the leadership in the Muslim community about how much we do. But the guiding factor that I've been taking personally is that the imam of the El Noor Mosque here in Christchurch has said that it's an opportunity to look back and reflect and look at the people who were affected. So um, that's one thing I sort of took to heart. It is something you wrestle with because, you know, we have contacts and people that were spoken to over a very long period of time uh, ever since the attack, and some of them didn't want to be involved uh, because it is too traumatic when you think about what they've been through. But others, um, particularly people I spoke to in the days afterwards, were very open about talking about it. I've just continually been amazed at how open some of these victims are. You know, just just last week as, as I prepared a story for the anniversary, I was invited back into uh, one of the victims' homes and made to feel welcome and very keen to, to speak about the things that he's been through. And it, it's very humbling to see their approach. 
I mean, it was interesting that uh, the Muslim Association of Canterbury created their own content, their own website, their own interviews, and, and encouraged people to share them. And does that worry you that perhaps they don't see the media as an ally, but possible not as an enemy, but maybe as a source of sort of unwanted pressure on them at this time? I think part of it is just the scale of it, because it's not just the local media here. I mean, we have contacts, we have people that we've spoken to and met, so we're not going through those official channels typically. But, you know, they're also getting these requests from international media, and that, I think, has become potentially quite overbearing for them. Whereas for me personally, I'm able to go back to the people I met then, but those core core people right at the centre who, who lead the mosques and people in senior leadership there, I think they're just getting completely inundated. If we go back to the day last year, uh, I mean, you were right on the scene there very quickly at the police cordon, and there was that extraordinary interview you did with Farid Ahmed, and uh, I mean, I say extraordinary, it was, it was his calmness, the, the way he gave a measured account of what had happened at a point where his, his own wife was missing, and we now know, you know, she didn't survive it. I mean, I was watching it live at the time. You'd be barely able to believe how composed he was and how he was conducting himself. Does, does that moment come back to you? It's something I think about often because I have continued to keep in touch with Farid and, and done many stories with him over the last year, but particularly over the last few days as we prepare for the anniversary, I've thought back to that moment. It's exactly as you say, just his ability to be calm and clearly deliver exactly what was happening in that moment despite going through the trauma himself I, I, I don't know how he did it and he, he's kept that same incredible attitude even opting to, to forgive you know the alleged shooter in the, in the days afterwards after learning that his wife Husna had died in the last few days I don't know why it's sort of been on my mind I suppose just thinking back just being uh, more than any story I've ever done just so close to the suffering of others, uh, and that and that's something that certainly sticks with you and stays with you in the days and months afterwards. And speaking of the days and months afterwards, it's, it had a big ripple effect right through an, an organisation as big as RNZ in that um, staff were cycled in and out of Christchurch. Care was taken not to leave people with that story uh, for too long because... Um, and, the, and the demands from overseas media kept coming. It had an effect on leave, appointments, even the parliamentary press gallery, reporters had to be taken out of that. Others, It, it really had a ripple effect right through the organisation. Did you feel the same in, in the more close um, environment of you know the Christchurch Bureau? Well, at least for me anyway, I can only speak for myself. It just felt like we were stuck in a tunnel then and it was almost like nothing else was happening in the world and we just wanted to keep working on that story for as long as our bodies would allow us to. And I remember at one point I was told that I had to... Uh, take a couple of days off because we'd already worked and I just didn't want to stop and I don't think anyone did but yeah it, it was a good decision to take us off because there's only so much you can take at one time of being so exposed I suppose to the suffering of others. Do you feel there's perhaps a danger as you look at Every media organisation doing these comprehensive series, you know, each day this past week, for example, the likes of Stuff and the Herald rolling out these multimedia things. Or are you one of those perhaps that feel actually, you know, maybe less is more and there's a little too much of, of this kind of coverage, you know, both for the the average citizen and people who really were affected by it in Christchurch? It's certainly something that um, we should think about. Maybe one of the problems is that 
none of the media organisations are talking to each other. We've all got our own plans and we all want to commemorate the victims in, 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 in our own way. Uh, and maybe the total cumulative effect of that is too much for some. But uh, it does but, become a really valuable and powerful kind of historical resource. That stuff will be there online and it is quite a body of work though, isn't it? That's the thing as well. I think if there's ever an opportunity to go back and remember the emotion and the feeling of that day, it's the anniversary. And for me personally, with my stories, that's what I've tried to do and then move it forward to how they are doing now. It may be too much for some. I I think it is important work and it is really important to continue to honour these people and to continue to hold them up uh, as an example of some really great, amazing New Zealanders, great Kiwis. Finally, Thomas, uh, in the past year, media have exposed and reported some cases of far-right individuals and groups, some disturbing stories, in fact, um, you know, hinting at their, their racist, violent intent. Someone who's an expert like Paul Spoonley, the academic who's been researching extremism for uh, many, many years, he warned this week that more needs to be done by New Zealand, uh, not specifically the media, but New Zealand as a country, to deal with the problem. Do you think that this is something that the media shouldn't lose focus on? It is really important to continue reporting on that. I think if you look back, it was something that the media in general didn't really understand. At least for me personally, you know, I sort of saw white supremacy before this event as a bit of a a joke almost or something not to be considered because... Or even something that Christchurch had a bit of a reputation for, you know, visibly, you know, skinheads and so on going back a number of years. Yes, and and you kind of thought of them as a, as a marginalised group in society who had these awful, abhorrent, racist views uh, that were just kind of in the background and they weren't really a threat. I, I never expected anything like this to happen. And now that I think, you know, others have described it as our innocence being shattered as a society, now we know that this kind of event can take place. I think you will start to see a lot more emphasis and a lot more journalism focused on really rooting out that white supremacy and showing it exactly for what it is. But but there is a problem with it. When do you decide to do the story about someone who has these abhorrent views? And so, you know, they're posting these messages and these photos to a group of 20 people on Telegram or, or whatever. Do you then do the story and broadcast that to a million people and, and continue to spread their message? When do you make the decision to highlight it and when do you make the decision to ignore it? Uh, it, It's a tough ethical question uh, that we will have to continue working through. Yeah, making the judgment about where they're really likely to cause harm or encourage other people to do so, that's um, something. But then again, you know, you'd look at the actions of um, the the guy who's on trial and you think, well, there's one individual who was able to cause absolute chaos and it wasn't foreseen. It's a tough one. When you look at it, what what do these people who are posting these threats and messages want? Well, they want their message spread as wide as they can. And if we highlight it, are we just actually doing what they want? But on the other side, if you don't report on it and just leave it in the background and don't challenge those views and hold them to account, do they then continue to grow and then we end up with where we were on March 15th? It, it, it is really, really difficult.
That was Thomas Mead, a TV reporter for News Hub on March the 15th last year, who was among the first to arrive at the Al Noor Mosque. Now he's one of TVNZ's reporters in Christchurch, covering this week's commemorations and the anniversary. And you can hear more of what Thomas Mead had to tell me about what happened that day a year ago, the impact that it's had on our news media since then, and some lessons for the media to learn. That's in the online version of the story, which is on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, and our section of the media. Media Watch app. Not all the special programs about March the 15th, 2019 lately have been about the personal stories. Some have raised thorny issues that New Zealand needs to confront as well. And one of those is the RNZ podcast series The Guest House, hosted by former RNZ journalist Muhammad Hassan and made with independent online news site Middle East Eye. I'm a Muslim New Zealander. In this five-part series, I'm going to try and unpack what it felt like for me and other people in my community after Christchurch. How difficult it was to make sense of something senseless. And to try and answer this nagging question. Do we belong in this country? Attitudes to immigration, belonging and racism are all raised in episodes of The Guest House with people who have experienced and confronted those issues. Last Wednesday, the RNZ newsroom podcast The Detail investigated dissatisfaction over the distribution of significant sums donated to victims' relief. And last weekend, RNZ's insight was entitled Ignored by the State. And it was the story of three Muslim women whose warnings of far-right hostility weren't taken seriously enough before March 15, 2019. On the Conversation website last Wednesday, Massey University academic Paul Spoonley, who's researched far-right extremism in New Zealand over decades, said it remains a high-level threat here. And he said he hoped New Zealand would stop believing it was immune to far-right extremism and violence after the shock of the killings one year ago. But now, he says, he's not sure enough has changed. My report card for New Zealand is that we still need to do more, including keeping the public better informed that the problem hasn't gone away. Just ask those who continue to be targeted. Extremists like Christchurch man Philip Arps have been jailed after being exposed in the media this past year. And just last Monday, Stuff's Thomas Munch and Newsroom's Mark Dalder both reported that a member of the far-right Action Zealandia organisation was planning possible crimes, sounding out sources of guns and reaching out to dangerous neo-Nazi groups overseas, including the base in the US. And two other people affiliated with Action Zealandia have recently been arrested, including a teenager following a threat made to work worshippers at the Al Noor Mosque and a 27-year-old soldier. The New Zealand Herald ran the digital series The Ripple Effect in five daily parts this week and Stuff.co.nz hosted Nine Bullets, a seven-episode multimedia online series featuring the recovery of Christchurch Mosque attack survivor Temel Atachuju, made by Stuff and Christchurch company Frank Films. Is this OK for you to do this today? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm confident. So You're okay? Yeah, it can be some uh, flashbacks or something like this, but I take my old medication just before I come. Please welcome. How many would have been here with you in this room? Nine Bullets was produced for stuff by Frank Films founder Gerard Smythe, who's done more than anyone to record for posterity the consequences of and responses to Christchurch's traumas in recent years. And Nine Bullets was directed by his colleague Jendi Harper, a former TV3 reporter who also covered the quakes in Christchurch in 2010 and 2011. I didn't um, realise before I did it just how much he wanted to talk about the detail of what happened that day. Um, we did the whole thing in probably 
30 minutes. What he wanted to talk about, I followed. Uh, some of the associations, the Otago Muslim Association, for example, said they didn't want to take part in this anniversary. And the Muslim Association of Canterbury created some of their own content because they didn't want the media intruding on people at a, at a sensitive time. Uh, do you get a sense all the media coverage that's gone on uh, is not something they welcome? I think we're totally sensitive to the fact that not everyone wants to reflect on that day. And I think that's very similar to the situation journalists and wider media had following the earthquake anniversary, exactly, you know, that that same tragic event and that there will be sectors of our society who really just don't want to go back to that day. Just as there are people who also do want to reflect and and acknowledge and and be together as a group of people. So you're always going to get that with a disaster, I think. And of course the other thing is these people come from 45 different countries and 45 different cultures and um, they have very diverse views on what might happen. They're not one community. Gender, you mentioned there uh, the quakes in 2010-2011. You were a, a TV news reporter then. But what, what you're doing now with Frank Films is very different. And, of course, Gerard, what you've done too, making the long-form stuff like When a City Falls, I mean, you've described it, haven't you, Gerard, as it's, it's current affairs. It's, it's in the middle, isn't it, news gathering and, and documentary? Yes, it's this new form that we can do because we can distribute now on the internet. Um, so we can tell these short, compressed stories... We make one a week. We we make about, I think last year, 22, Gendy. Mm-hmm. 22 episodes, yeah. Yeah, and we try and do stories of national interest, but from here. Yeah, so for example, there's the Changing South series, I think one and two, two series of that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So videos uh, around about five minutes in length, um, described as current affairs from the South Island for all New Zealanders. Absolutely. You know, you have your analytics that show that they're being picked up in Malaysia, and and it's yeah. it's just fantastic. I mean, I come from the day when we um, made stories on tape, and they got put in a library, and once they were played out, uh, they got put back in that library, and they were never seen again. <laughs> so it's just fantastic to have, to be able to to share stories now and get such. Um, feedback in that from all around the world. It's it's fantastic. Well, let's talk about one particular example, um, the, the video called What Happened at Christchurch Hospital on the Day of the Mosque Tragedy. We knew that this was obviously an unprecedented event in Christchurch in New Zealand. And there's also circumstances around that where the hospital is, you know, the only trauma hospital in the region. I had worked there previously in a media capacity and so I knew some of the people involved. I had heard stories about what had gone gone down there that day and what they'd had to do, how they'd coped. They trusted you, Gendy, to bring a camera into the heart of the hospital. Um, staff in the background became part of... We filmed just about everyone in ED, didn't we, that day? And yeah. they all seemed to want to be involved. They, the hospital were, were trusting us to to do something compassionate, I guess, empathetic. I mean, in the past, I guess, that kind of content could have made its way into a documentary that uh, might screen on television but we might not see for weeks or months or might have been some fleeting scenes in a, in a news bulletin such as you know, yeah. the kind Gendy would have been working for uh, <laughs> back in 2011 in the Christchurch quakes and, uh, you know, here, here today, gone tomorrow. You know, Colin, about 
15, 20 years ago, I made half-hour documentaries for a Sunday morning series on people with disabilities. These were about 27 minutes long, I think. The stories we tell today in five minutes have about the same information in them. (laughs) These are compressed stories, and I think there's a new contract with audiences where somehow rather literacy has changed, and you can tell the same sort of story, you know, but really make it short and sharp. They're like little commercials in a way. For example, Nine Bullets, that whole series rolled out uh, over the week. That's all hosted on Stuff, which is, you know, the most visited news website in the country. Yes, it is. Um, uh, The history of that is that uh, a journalist at Stuff, Charlie Gates, um, had an idea and uh, Carol Hirschfeld um, promoted that and rang me and said, would you like to meet Tamal and and develop and, and make such a story? We spent the next nine months with him and uh, didn't know where we were going with it. Um, when Tamal said, I want to go home to Turkey, I just can't be here any longer, um, we went with him. We went to Friday prayers at the mosque where we happened to meet other people who had been shot and they had a very candid conversation. It was sort of like a home movie in a way, you know, it was pretty intimate stuff. But they really are suitable for distribution on the web. A lot of these projects have been publicly funded in one way or another by via New Zealand on Air for various platforms. One of your motivations for doing the kind of work you do is that actually, although Christchurch is a big city, obviously, and Canterbury an important region, it just doesn't feature in our national media as much as, uh, say, a certain big city up north and, uh, uh, and the capital. Yeah, that's sort of true, Colin. I think about 97%, to be accurate, of New Zealand on their funding for television storytelling or visual storytelling goes to Auckland. New Zealand On Air would say, well, Auckland um, production houses make stories for national distribution and tell stories about all of New Zealand. And, of course, there's a couple of things wrong with that. For a start, we don't get to tell our own stories here. Aucklanders tell our stories. And, secondly, they seldom do come anyway because it's, it's a big dent in their budget to fly down here with a crew. So um, we get left out, and a few years ago now, Canterbury University studied over three months uh, what New Zealanders saw of New Zealand on television, and 3% in that three months was of this region. Yeah, and of course that's at a time after we'd had a significant earthquake where there is so much to talk about, debate and discuss, but we have no vehicle to do such. Well, after the uh, 2011 quake, um, Jendi, I came down to make a program about how that had affected the media well, one mm-hmm. year on, and TV3 at the time was based in the old Eddington Raceway, um, the temporary sort of headquarters. Yes. In fact, the whole Media Works operation, the radio stations and everything was there. Uh, Jeff Hampton, a uh, reporter, uh, looked after me, showed me around the city and how things worked and didn't. Now, he was worried at the time about the capacity of Christchurch's news gathering and never really getting back to what it was previously. Mm. And, uh, I mean, do you find as a a former reporter the news gathering capacity just isn't what it should be for a city of Christchurch? Absolutely, yeah. I think think that's definitely the truth, Colin. Um, Newsrooms have been decimated. I mean, at at the time I was working for Campbell Live, uh, uh, you know, that show was was canned. Then I moved on to a program called Story, which also was canned. Um, So we lost uh, quite a few reporters through that. That was when I left. Um, And I think it's been a sinking lid policy ever since, really. Uh, There's been no new roles created that I I know of. I still do part-time work for Television New Zealand here. Yeah, the newsroom is is definitely, you know, five, four or five reporters. 
um, not back to when I recall in the city we had a you know a bustling TVNZ newsroom with gosh there would have been 13, 14, 15 full time reporters covering covering a range of programs. And then you get, you know, the flip side of that, Colin, is that during the earthquake there may have been, you know, a reducing number of reporters but a growing number of communication staff uh, working in various government organisations. I think the Sarah comms team outnumbered journos in the, in the town by quite a rate. So, Well, you, um, saw, you saw that personally yourself because you worked for a time in communications with I the did, yes, Canterbury I know, just District a couple Health of years Board. ago I did, I did a year. have to say, though, uh, CDHB comms is a very lean, mean team <laughs> compared to others in the city. This past week, Jared, we've seen, of course, a lot of coverage uh, leading up to this anniversary. Do you feel that in total it's, it's been a good thing? It adds to the historical record. We have podcasts, we have television documentaries, we have internet web series... Uh, I suspect, though, that uh, it may well be too much at the moment, and that may lead to not enough in the future. And now we've reached this one year on, what should now, do you think, will be the focus for an outfit like yours, which is current affairs from the South for a national audience, but doesn't have to respond to you know daily or weekly news deadlines? Yeah, I think it's just going to be for us definitely ongoing. Um, our, we like sort of to look at things from an issues-based it's certainly in our agenda to bring up topics around this. We, you know, it's, we're just not here for a one-year anniversary. Obviously, we're here for the long haul. Is Christchurch a racist city? Perhaps that's a story we might look into because that's certainly what the rest of the country looking in thinks of us. Uh, of course Christchurch is a racist city, but is it any more racist or any less racist than any other part of New Zealand is the question. I'm not so sure that that's the case. And when you... I was talking the other day to some people down at the mosque and they were saying that their hope from the publicity they've had in the last year is that they can be seen as mainstream New Zealanders, that something's demystified about Islam and and that these new New Zealanders are really keen to be seen as um, people who are contributing to this country. Maybe that's a positive that might just come out of all of this. And I think even from Tamal's story, from watching that and being involved a little in the process of it, I learned so much about Islam. That's the, yeah. And that, that's a great take-home. You know, if we can all just learn a little, that's been the power of some of the coverage over this last week, for me anyway. The coverage of what's happened with the mosque in the last few weeks has been historic, hasn't it? Because I don't think I can remember... An, well, I can't remember an occasion where every possible type of media in New Zealand has done something on one subject. You know, from television documentaries to the podcast to everyone's telling the same story in a different medium. Um, There's so many different types of stories can be told, from the widows to people who have been shot to the larger community. Uh, Lots of stories... um, give us a better perspective, don't they? Jared Smythe and Jendi Harper there from Frank Films, the makers of Nine Bullets, a series for stuff.co.nz, telling the story of Tamil Atachoju, badly wounded in the Alnor Mosque a year ago today. The cancellation of that commemorative service in Christchurch was, of course, not the only bold call that was made yesterday to try and hold back the spread of COVID-19 coronavirus. As of midnight Sunday, every person entering New Zealand, 
including returning New Zealand citizens and residents, will be required to enter self-isolation for 14 days. Everybody. The Pacific are exempted from this measure. They are the only ones. Many political pundits applauded the PM's go-hard and go-early message there after days of urging her in the media to take more active measures. But while the Prime Minister was telling the media what the government will do on Saturday, the previous Sunday she'd been telling people what they ought to do about coronavirus, along with two experts and a Facebook Live video on her own feed. Kia ora everyone. We're seeing lots of feedback and questions coming through on social media about COVID-19. And there's been lots of research and evidence out there, including this report from the World Health Organization about specifically COVID-19, but no one expects you to read that. So today, to help us share a little bit of information, uh, I have um, the Chief Science Advisor, Juliet Gerard, and also Michelle Dickinson, also well known as Nano Girl, and both of them are going to help me answer some questions I've been seeing from you. Now that video has been viewed 1.2 million times in the week that it's been online and it probably won't be the last time in this emergency that the Prime Minister uses that particular tool. In a press conference on Friday attended by international reporters here for the March 15th anniversary, she said this about the power of social media. We live in a world now, of course, where this is our new form of publisher. These are our new broadcasters. And lately... The old ones haven't always helped when it comes to COVID-19 facts. The public panic is almost as contagious as the virus itself. As cases spread, so too does the fear and anxiety, only amplified as we see the news headlines about events being cancelled and iconic locations shut down. So should we be adopting the famous World War II motto, keep calm and carry on, or do we have a right to panic? That was how the morning show on Australia's Channel 7 opened on Friday with a pointless rhetorical question which didn't help the viewers at all and neither did the on-screen caption with the weak pun keep calm and corona on. But they did have a medical expert in their studio who was making sense. A lot of that anxiety comes from not really having enough information to know what to do. You know, this is a new disease. It's only been around for a few months and we just don't know that much about it. And so lack of information breeds fear and anxiety and and people get upset and and that's an entirely reasonable position to be in. What that doesn't need to do is spill over into panic, you know, and we're we're humans. We don't always behave rationally and we saw that last week playing out with people panic buying things. Indeed, the whole world online saw the images and videos of people fighting over toilet rolls in Sydney supermarkets. Professor Darren Saunders said that this was a consequence of what he called information underload, a shortage of solid info about the risks among many hours and pages of media coverage and millions of social media posts. And the same could be said at times of some in the media here. There has been a lot of fuss made about it, a lot of hysteria, a lot of beat up. I think media's got a little bit to answer for oh, that. I agree. Mark, ah. Mark, Mark's been Have you been talking ah. to Mark Richardson? Mark? Are we on, on the same? Oh, should yeah. we just swap seats? Yeah. Count it, brother. Idiots. Former New Zealander of the Year Dr Lance O'Sullivan on 3's AM show back on the 28th of January, getting a big thumbs up from the host Mark Richardson. But on the 28th of February, Dr O'Sullivan was back on the show saying this. I think New Zealand, New Zealand wants leaders that um, are prepared to say, look, hey, we got it wrong. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and uh, maybe this is, in this situation, we are dealing with something that's a bit more serious than what, on first appearances. Mm. And so 
there'll be people like Mark out there who say that no, this is still just a, a big, you know, a, a hype thing. Which I, you know, look, I, I thought, and I wrote articles, and so did Dr. Freeman. Because I think the reaction is still actually, you know, we're ripping our share markets apart, we're yeah. ripping our economy apart. Um, I think prematurely. And two weeks after that, it's not us ripping up the share market; it's global forces. Last weekend, the show's host, Duncan Garner, told his viewers this. We went ape when we should have been calm. We screamed, help, when we should have jogged on. Fear doesn't do anyone any favours. And not giving in to fear is a good message at this time. But just seconds earlier, Duncan Garner had told AM show viewers this. We appear to be watching economies like ours being chucked on the international bonfire. Uh, This won't be pretty. A potential collapse of this international world order is at stake. The conclusion to that rather confused opinion piece was that the self-isolation practised by Kiwis probably wasn't going to help. 9,000 New Zealanders on this enforced two-week holiday. Now, I'd hate it. Shut off from the world, no contact with people, I'd be skating the walls. But isolating Duncan Garner from a TV studio for a bit might be in the best interests of his viewers when it comes to COVID-19. At talk radio station News Talk ZB, some of their hosts have been telling listeners about the dangers of New Zealand overreacting. A fortnight ago, for example, the morning host Kerry McIver said she'd happily fly to London for a break with no fear of contracting coronavirus. And ZB used that comment in trailers promoting her show. And in the promos this past Friday, she was saying this. Looking at the effect on international travel, on tourism operations around the world, I'm hazarding a guess that it's the reaction to this latest virus that will cause the most damage rather than the virus itself. It, it does feel Armageddon-ish for some people. Sport's been greatly affected by coronavirus and it has affected the Black Caps in Sydney. Now we're talking News Talk ZB. And just moments after that aired on ZB, the drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen called the station's leading sportscaster Martin Devlin, who was alarmed about why so many sports events were being shut down. I mean, how ridiculous does it get? You know, the Piha thing, for example. Look, maybe I'm just an idiot, but I don't understand. What what are we all afraid of? That one person in a crowd has it, and therefore they may infect somebody else. Well, that is the very reason that these extreme measures are being taken. Martin Devlin fretted about how he was going to cover three hours of sport in his show on Saturday and Sunday. Meanwhile, Sky Sport now has the same problem for its channels around the clock, and Spark Sport couldn't offer its subscribers anything from the Melbourne Grand Prix this weekend. And that's just the beginning of the disruption to top sport and for the media which rely on it. Likewise, for the travel industry, a huge source of ad revenue for the media, newspaper sales staff will be terrified about losing full-page ads for cruisers, which practically prop up some editions of the papers these days. And it's no coincidence that both major newspaper publishers this week announced big campaigns promoting taking a break here in New Zealand. Now, at times of crisis, the demand for sound media coverage surges at the very time when providing it becomes harder and sometimes riskier than ever. And as more becomes known about this virus and how and where it's spreading, we'll really need bona fide media coverage to reverse that information underload and counteract the fact-free stuff that'll be flowing freely through people's social media feeds and by word of mouth. Right now, the nation's editors are making plans for how they can carry on news reporting at a time when some reporters will no longer have access all areas and some reporters might not be able to work themselves for one reason or another. It's early days yet, but this pandemic, when it's passed, may well have changed our media industry in ways that no one can yet predict.
Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.